Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're discussing how living with risk affects us. Does it enrich our lives or impoverish them? And what are the implications for public policy? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Through this podcast, we want to let you into some of our most intriguing research findings, findings that we think the wider world needs to know about. And today we're focusing on some work that is both fascinating and directly relevant to our current extraordinary times. We're looking at the impact of living with risk. Living, that is, with the possibility, but not the certainty, that something bad might happen to us. In these times of pandemic and economic recession, living with risk, risk to our health, risk to our livelihoods, is part of many people's daily reality. Some political philosophers have suggested that a certain amount of exposure to risk is good for us. It enhances our self-respect and gives us a sense that the contribution we make to society actually matters. But recent work challenges that. It finds that if you're more likely to lose your job, you're less likely to feel good about yourself. It also suggests that different kinds of risk may affect us in different ways. And all of this has big implications for public policy and politics. How generous a social safety net should the state provide? And are politicians necessarily good at understanding the ways in which the wider population experiences risk? Well, that research is by my colleague, Lucy Barnes, Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at UCL, working with Alice Baderin from the University of Reading. And Lucy joins me to discuss it. Welcome, Lucy, to UCL Uncovering Politics. Could I begin by asking you, why do some people argue that risk is good for us? Yeah, so it's a good question, but I think it has a quite intuitive answer that, you know, most of us can relate to that we can think back to kind of small episodes in our life where we do actually experience a real kind of payoff, whether it's in this sense of agency or just feeling good about the kind of person that we are from exposing ourselves to risk and, and usually also overcoming them. And so part of what we're interested in is is certainly focusing in on the experience of the risk before you know how it turned out. Because if it turns out badly, clearly that's going to be bad for your feelings of well-being. And if it turns out well, then arguably then surely it would be good. But but if you think about from my life, for example, I've I've lived in three different countries and that might you might think of that as, as taking a bit of a risk to up sticks and move to America where you don't know anyone and then to succeed in that context is is empowering and it does make you feel good about yourself and so migration is one example that people have studied as this exposure to danger coupled with a confidence that you kind of can overcome the danger um, and that sense of mastery when in fact you do so um, and also in terms of risky sports activities a lot of my friends are keen rock climbers and that's you know has that same vein you know that there's a danger that something bad might happen but you're quite confident that it, it won't happen to you because you're going to have those skills, have those capacities to to overcome to overcome that, and I think in the context context of distributive justice, as the philosophers would would talk about it, this is this it's quite linked to this idea, liberal philosophical idea that people should should have this sense of their self worth and this confidence in their ability to realize the plans that they've set out for their lives, and this might be direct. 
because the risk that my goal might not be realized sharpens its value to me. I become more aware of it. It might be indirect because in order to avoid the bad outcome, I do other good things. So I work very hard to avoid losing my job. And then it's not the risk per se, but through through the risk, the risk motivates me to some valuable hard work, which gives me this sense of pride or this sense of worth. And then the third argument, which I think is, is it's the most social, if you will, is that by allowing others to be exposed to risk or by exposing other people to risk, we demonstrate to them that we have that faith in their capacities, that we think they have the mastery to overcome this risk of failure in a certain situation. And this is those three kind of pathways, if you will, are, I think, the way that we might generalize a little bit from the narrow experiences of risk to this kind of broader idea that some risk might be beneficial for this sense of self-worth and self-respect. Right, yes. So you're not just saying that risk is good when we go out onto the sports field and do something slightly risky, but but the the argument from some of these political philosophers, and you're particularly picking up on work by John Thomasy, the idea there is that being exposed to risk in the job market, uh, so the possibility that you might lose your job and that there isn't all that much of a safety net for, for you if you do lose your job, that's actually kind of an empowering thing for you. You feel you feel better about yourself. You kind of feel like you're making a valuable contribution to society, that, that if society said, yeah, it doesn't really matter whether you do your job well or not, you're still going to be just fine, then that would kind of suggest that your job doesn't actually matter. So it's kind of empowering for, to, to, to have that sense of of jeopardy, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And and the argument that we're trying to pick up on and and, and uh, investigate in this paper exactly comes from this book by, by John Tomasi called Free Market Fairness. And what he's trying to do there is really make an argument against some of the insurance functions of developed European welfare states. Not so much employment protection, which prevents you losing your job, but the kind of, if you were to lose your job, what unemployment insurance is available to you? How generous is that? And his argument there is that this kind of positive experience of risk, it's distinct from the argument that we shouldn't do this because we have values other than those that are central to this kind of liberal distributive justice. This this idea of self-respect comes from rules who advocates political rights should be centrally protected by any institutions, but that economic freedoms do not have that privileged position. And Tomasi wants to kind of say, oh, but they should. And the reason they should is actually starting from your own premises that this kind of moral worth and and self-respect is undermined by disallowing the experience of risk, which in which in his uh, his view is what these kind of institutions of the welfare state do. So, so that's one kind of intuition pushing in one direction. You're suggesting that perhaps we have some intuitions pushing in the other direction as well. What would they be? Well, one of them, and I think we'll come back to this later, is that the most compelling kind of ex- enjoyable experiences of risk are quite different from this systematic economic type of risk or health type of risk that that we kind of need to work for this to be an argument about um, social and economic institutions. So these feel-good risks, as I would call them, they tend to have specific characteristics. But when we think about the kind of the three general pathways, the direct, the indirect, and the social that I mentioned before, yes, we can tell this story whereby, you know, the, the risk leads me to work hard, and then I feel good about myself because working hard makes me feel good in the indirect one. But we could also say, well, no, like this exposure to risk does not lead me to work hard. I find it very demotivating that no matter how hard I work, there's still a 
potential bad outcome looming in the future. And it's very demotivating and alienating. And I feel disengaged from my work and then I don't work hard. And then I feel bad about myself for not working. And similarly, this kind of direct effect, it might not lead to a greater kind of clarity of the value of your goals so much as a sense of helplessness and despondency. And on the social side as well, one person's expression of confidence in your capacities could actually be felt by me as just a disregard for the outcomes that I'm subject to and a kind of that it's not so much that you respect my capacities, it's that you don't care if the bad outcomes happen. And so I think for any of these three pathways, we can tell plausible stories one way or the other. And, and you know, to me, this is where the distinction between how far we can get philosophically and, and when we need to kind of switch into empirical mode really kicks in, because to me, these are empirical questions rather than philosophical ones. You know, what actually happens is something that we can jump out of our philosophical armchair and go and ask in the world. Yes. So I was going to ask you about that because I think of you as very much a number crunching political scientist. And here you are talking to me about John Rawls and political philosophy and all of these (laughs) things. Uh, How did this happen? There are two types of answers to that. One is intellectual and probably more interesting. And one is social and happenstance and and, and probably more um, necessary. Uh, So Alex and I were both postdocs at Nuffield. And so we would have lunch and, you know, we'd be talking about what we're working on. And that's really the kind of practical way in which this this came about. Some of my previous work has been on views on redistribution and the welfare state and progressive taxation. And one of the things that drive those views is this kind of insurance role that Tomasi picks up. And so, you know, it's kind of well known, if you will, that one of the things that leads people to demand more action from the state is the feeling that they're exposed to risk. So people who people who work in jobs that have higher rates of, of unemployment and also people who have uh, kind of more specific skill profiles so that were their industry to struggle, they would they would find it more difficult to retrain or to get a job without retraining. Um, they tend to demand that the state step in and provide more generous insurance. So then when when I heard about this argument that risk might be good and people would get this sense of agency from lacking that insurance, this is kind of a little bit of an empirical paradox because we're like, well, I'm not sure. That's not how we think, how we empiricists think risks work in the world. But we've never really taken this philosophical idea of self-respect as the outcome that we're interested in. We've always cared more about how it affects who people vote for or what their preferences over the welfare state um, are. Great. So you have these various different arguments going on, um, on both sides, uh, for and against a positive role for risk. uh, And you want to test them out empirically. So how have you gone about doing that? As a number crunching political scientist, (laughs) we uh, dive in with large scale survey data uh, from England in the first instance, and then and, and from Britain. And so but the outcome that we're interested in is a philosophical one in, in ways. And so it's not really something that most surveys ask much about. How do you how would you rate your moral worth? How would you how would you rate your capacity to p- pursue your life plans in, in this kind of uh, liberal philosoph- philosophical way? But you found a survey that did. It turns out that actually quite a lot of the things that we think come quite close to this expression of kind of liberal philosophical self-respect and they it's not they're not perfect so i don't want to overclaim here and irritate any philosophical listeners but items in surveys that are really actually designed to track mental health outcomes contain a lot of this kind of philosophical self-respect 
content. So there are questions on kind of, are you feeling useful? Do you feel like you're dealing with problems well? Do you feel good about yourself, which is a little bit broad, but but we think, you know, certainly overlaps with this feeling of, of worth as a person. And the, the best place that we found because of this overlap with some of this uh, psychological kind of subject area was actually the Health Survey for England, which is a really nice big sample and asks all of these questions about they think they're about mental health and, and we think that they're about, about self-respect. So we have that. And then at the same time, that same survey also needs to ask something that allows us to track how exposed to risk people are. Um, and so there are a few different ways we might think about this. And one of them is just how much risk do you perceive in any given domain, this kind of subjective risk. And then we, But we might think people get that wrong. People overestimate, underestimate in, in ways that are going to be systematically linked not for kind of good reasons but for nuisance reasons with 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 these kind of self-respect elements so we we also think about whether we can find objective characteristics that track people's exposure to risk and so in the paper we look at subjective probability of job loss Um, but then we also have information on the specific occupations that people work in and from macro level data objective you know labor force statistics we can calculate for people and we actually do it by gender and occupation so for women working in managerial roles what percentage of people who identify as that's their occupation in their current or their previous job you know what's the unemployment rate within that within that occupation gender group and obviously some of those occupations have much higher unemployment rates than others and that's we see that as kind of the objective risk of job loss that people face okay so so you have you've got your subjective and objective measures of uh, risk in terms of job insecurity and you've got various different measures of self-respect so what do you find essentially that whichever way we cut it in terms of subjective or objective measures the story that risk looks good for people is not reflected in our data rather the more risk people are exposed to in this specific form of the risk of of losing your job the lower the levels of self-respect people report right so it's a really kind of striking finding actually you've got this big debate that's been going on in the literature and essentially you can you can resolve that d- debate uh, with the evidence that you have here is that fair I think we can resolve it in the in a narrow way we do find and this is you know also consistent with other work on the impact of labor market insecurity and economic insecurity more broadly that it that kind of risk really doesn't look good for people. We don't test the idea, the more general idea that, you know, any kind of risk is always going to be detrimental. So I wouldn't want to say, you know, oh, aha, we've settled it. Risk is bad. Off we go. But I think the type of risk that we're talking about here, unemployment risk, which importantly is the type of risk which underpins social insurance and welfare state schemes. So this kind of question of distributive justice is implicated in this kind of risk. Uh, in in this domain, uh, we don't find any evidence really that it's positive and we find consistent evidence that it's negative. Yeah. Okay. So before we get on to different types of risk, just uh, let's explore this kind of core finding a little bit further first. So what you've got here is essentially a correlation or a negative correlation that more exposure to risk produces less self-respect or it's associated with less self-respect as 
Um, as every self-respecting uh, social scientist knows, correlation does not prove causation. And I guess we could think that, well, if you have low self-respect, then maybe that makes it more likely that you could lose your job, you know, something like that. So can we be confident that the direction of causation is as you suggest it is? Yeah. So thinking through this, we do have to be very careful. Like we are relying on this kind of the correlational evidence base. And so it really is kind of incumbent on us to think through all the ways in which this might be working, not as exposure to risk driving this, these lower levels of self-respect, but actually all kinds of other relationships. And there are two that are particularly important to think about. One is something else is going on, uh, which drives both higher levels of risk and lower levels of self-respect. Or the version that I think you mentioned is, you know, actually it's backwards. And what happens is, first of all, you have low levels of self-respect, and then in a consequence, you're, you're exposed to higher levels of risk. And so we try to address that in a few different ways by looking at different types of evidence. Um, you know, first of all, we we are able to statistically control for a lot of the kind of typical correlates of, of not feeling good about yourself, although there aren't, there isn't a vast body of literature, as I said, out there on self-respect in itself. But if we think that that goes the same way as, as other similar things, then then we kind of know how to address that a little bit with, with control variables. You know, a, a really important concern is that both high risk and low self-respect are simply associated with more generalized disadvantage that you have a less good job that's both more risky and that it's actually this general disadvantage that that makes you feel less good about yourself and it's nothing really about the risk and so i mentioned earlier about the the thread of work in welfare state preferences literature that that draws on the specificity of skills as an indicator of risk and this is a particular type of risk, but it's the difference if you can think about it between someone who has, you know, very transferable skills so that their attachment to their current job isn't particularly important in terms of their ability to uh, produce at a high level and to earn a good a good salary. So that if they were to lose their job, then they would be readily re-employed in a different industry, in a different firm, in a different sector, compared to people who have skills that are much more tied to either the firm that they work in, the company that they work in, or the sector that they work in. And so the useful thing for us here is that skill specificity is not particularly associated with disadvantage, right? Those, the jobs that have the most highly specific skills are kind of clustered in the, the middle of the income distribution or the kind of, they, they are skilled. They, they typically tend to be quite stable. They tend to be you know, good jobs and, and the people who have them are not are not necessarily exposed to risk because they're just exposed to all kinds of bad things. They're exposed to risk because of this particular feature of their skills. And so when we use that instead of the unemployment risk as our indicator of risk, the results do, they are a little bit weaker, but we still find this same negative association. And so that's one of the key things that makes us think um, there's something about the risk itself, um, and it's not just the general disadvantage question. And then we have second data set that we jump into because we, you know, that one of the kind of key things that we're saying, oh, well, correlation is not causation. It's just, well, these are just different types of people in fundamental ways that are unobservable. Even the skill specificity thing, the kind of person who gets these specific skills is different. Maybe they have a higher tolerance for risk or they have a different attitude towards risk and so on. So the other, other data set that we use is a panel where we can actually see the same people over time, this is the British Household Panel Survey, 
And with that survey, what we can do, again, it's still only correlation. <laughs> There's no silver bullet here. But mm -hmm. we can say that the correlation there is within the same individual, in those periods that they are experiencing higher levels of risk, they also report lower levels of self-respect. And the measures for self-respect in that survey are not quite as good. So that's why we don't kind of think of this as the, as the you know, the main the main headline. But it turns out that that same association turns out comes out within people as well as across people yeah sounds pretty powerful and you can use that data set as well to explore one of the other ideas that you mentioned earlier that maybe while you're going through a period of risks and that may be bad for your self-respect but if you get through it and you kind of succeed and you feel that you've achieved something then then by overcoming adversity that might lead to a positive sense of empowerment and that kind of thing so you're able to look at that idea there as well aren't you yeah right and i mean i think that's a, an important argument it takes us a little bit away from this idea that risk in itself is is good or this the experience of risk which is kind of where we started but without risk perhaps you can't have this experience of you know ex post having overcome it and therefore felt felt better about yourself but actually and again this is in line with some of the work in in economics so the kind of economics of well-being we find the patterns that we see are much more consistent with the story that when bad things do happen when you go through a period of, of high risk even when it's subsequently re resolved it has a negative um, effect on that level of self-respect that, that you report rather than it's bad at the time but you bounce back to an even higher level via this kind of resilience mechanism having overcome adversity we don't find evidence that, that that's going on yeah it's all, it all sounds like a bit of a slam dunk to be honest it <laughs> sounds, sounds great to me i mean it's just such a, a clear set of results it's, you know it's such a nice example of how uh, when when we're doing this kind of research, we really try to squeeze the evidence that we've got and look at different types of evidence, different sources of evidence, and check things and recheck things and consider, oh, but maybe it could be this. And and you've you've just you know you've just gone through a whole series of different bits of evidence, and they all come back giving you essentially the same conclusion. It's great. I think that's right. I mean, I think there is a, a, the one little bright spark of hope for the people who want to make the argument that risk isn't that bad after all. Is that when we mm -hmm. when we look at the when we look at the the probabilities the subjective probabilities of of, of risk and how they affect um, self respect and if we kind of separate them out into different increments, most people actually report quite low levels of of subjective risk of losing their job, and for those people the the move from no risk at all to a little bit of risk doesn't have a, an adverse effect. It doesn't help. Like we don't ever recover a positive effect. But, you know, where most people are, a tiny little bit more risk doesn't seem to, to make a lot of difference. But it's at the, at the higher levels of risk that we really see the, this, the negative effect coming out. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to, like you say, squeeze the data to make it slightly more complicated, you could. But I don't think you're going to overturn the, the baseline result. Yeah. And that begins to get us onto a theme that we have mentioned several times, namely different kinds of risk. And some kinds of risk might be uh, less problematic for us and more positive, perhaps, for us than other kinds of risk. Uh, so you talk about whether we take risk on voluntarily or whether they're kind of imposed upon us involuntarily. We, you look at uh, whether risk is something that affects our 
daily lives just all of the time or whether like going onto the sports field or climbing a mountain or something like that it's something that uh, happens for a short period of time and then we're out of that context again and you also talk about the degree to which we can control uh, the risks that we're subject to and I, I thought it was really interesting you kind of suggest that these different kinds of risk are likely to make a difference to their impact on our self-respect yeah and I mean it should be very clear here that this is this is not where we have adequately detailed large sample survey data to probe this empirically in the same way that that we did the the main relationship but this is how we have been thinking through kind of reconciling the result that that we do find with this intuition, which we don't think is completely misguided and which other kind of um, empirical work, more qualitative empirical work, typically going out and talking to people who live very risky lifestyles and, you know, how we might reconcile those two, you know, the two countervailing sides of the story, if you will. And I, I think it's important to us when thinking about this kind of relationship with self-respect that all of those intuitive arguments that I gave you at the beginning uh, about the demonstration of, of mastery over danger that might lead to this kind of positive uh, impact of risk, that impression comes from contexts where risks are voluntarily assumed, where they are typically somewhat controllable, right? It, people who like taking risks don't really like pure risks, like going and playing uh, roulette is not a kind of uh, appealing risk for these kind of people who see at risk because it is entirely not, it's entirely out uncontrolled compared to something like going out and playing poker where there's an element of risk against you, but there's also the element of controllability. There's the element of mastery in the side of that. So that's just kind of, kind of affirming this trust in your capacity to overcome a risk. Capacity has to matter. <laughs> and, and in some mm. kind of pure uncontrollable risk, settings it doesn't and then the and the other thing which i think highlights that in the kind of cultivated risk seeking literature and in this impression that we have of you know i love the thrill i get when i go and i, I climb this mountain is in it's that that's in juxtaposition to the routine mundane low risk uh, experience of my everyday life it's, it's like you say it's something that you jump into but equally it's something that you can jump out of and so it's not a kind of existential and pervasive experience of every day of your life, you worry about whether you will keep your job. Or in the current context, I think we have this much more pervasive health risk that's really kind of affecting the daily life, but doesn't have doesn't have this element that it's in contrast to routine. It, it is the routine and it is pervasive in that way. And, you know, this was our attempt drawing on a, a kind of big literature in this kind of cultivated risk-seeking work in, in sociology mainly to try to pin down why we would have this intuition that some risks do feel good, but that economic risk is really not one of those. So let's finally think uh, policy implications. So I guess one implication is, well, we shouldn't ban mountain climbing. A more important implication is strong, generous social safety nets are probably a good thing. Yes. From the perspective of insuring against risk, that definitely makes sense. Or at least the argument that joy of risk undermines this institutional framework, uh, that doesn't go through for us. And so then actually, interestingly, kind of with reference to that, our last uh, little little piece of conversation, there is some evidence that people who have less risky every day, if you will, um, are more likely to actually go and take 
whether it's entrepreneurial risks, and that's a, a finding about kind of uh, the safety net of the welfare state may actually allow people to take more risks in terms of entrepreneurship. Um, and there's also some evidence that people who live in very, very um, low risk and kind of collective communities take more financial risks. Um, there's there's a, some interesting work on this. It's called the cushion effect, um, that when you have a very stable cushion, that leads to kind of risk seeking or greater acceptance of risk in these more narrowly defined areas. Yeah. And that leads me on to one just final potential implication that it certainly intrigues me that if we're thinking about the policymaking process uh, and we're thinking about policymakers, then quite a lot of those policymakers are pretty well off people. So I guess they've got quite a strong cushion, if you like, and they may therefore be used to the idea that risk is something rather good, that, they, that risk is something that they choose to take on and they value and they think risk does stimulate you to do better work. And I just wonder, does that lead them to have a more positive view of risk and a greater inclination to think that it's fine to kind of impose risk on the wider population um, than would be the case if they were kind of truly representative of the population as a whole in terms of the degree to which they're exposed to the more uh, pervasive um dragging you down, grinding you down kinds of risk that many people face. So we, potentially we have a kind of skew in our policymaking system towards loading more risk onto people than is actually reasonable. I don't know anything about differences across people in terms of their willingness to impose risk on others. That's, a, I think, a, quite a complicated question. But we do know, in general, a reasonable amount about people's risk perceptions and risk acceptance. And in in on those dimensions, I think you're you're more or less right. Certainly, one of the most robust findings in this literature is <laughs> was term was coined twenty years ago. Now is that the white male effect of of all kind of demographic groups. This is American data, but I would not be surprised that it looks similar in in Britain. Uh, Non-white women white women and non-white men all look relatively similar in terms of their perceptions of the riskiness of various types of, of behavior. And white men just don't think things are that risky. And so, you know, when we do think about the demographic representation among policymakers, I think we, we, we'd see that an over-representation of that group that under, under assesses risk. So we don't know much about income, class, background, of people and their risks, risk-seeking, risk-lovingness, mainly because I think, as I said, this this work is more so in psychology and in public health, and it's, a, it's I think, a ripe area for exploration by political scientists mm. to think about those kind of political differences in attitudes towards risk. But there is some work from psychology, which I think is really relevant here, which is that experience high levels of power also are more likely to engage in risky behaviours. And I think the chain goes power, confidence, risk taking. So that's a little bit of a, of, of a long chain. But in that regard, I think your intuitions are right on. <laughs> to the extent that we know things, I think they accord with, with your intuitions there. Interesting. Really, really fascinating th stuff. Thank you so much, Lucy, for introducing us to that work. Um, Thought-provoking study in itself and so much more, so many further questions that it raises. I hope you'll be continuing in this, in this vein for some time to come. So thank you, Lucy. Next time, we're looking at the role of monarchy in modern democracy. 
Serious books on monarchy are rare, but a new volume on Europe's eight contemporary monarchies helps to fill the gap. So, does monarchy still deserve the attention of students of politics? And is the fact that most of the world's healthiest democracies are monarchies anything more than a coincidence? We'll be asking one of the new book's co-authors, Professor Robert Hazel. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.